who are just playing the bells, always a treat this time of year to hear them, and, and they remind us that this is Christmas time, after all. And so I wonder this morning what you hope Santa is bringing to you this year. What do you hope Santa is bringing to you this year? What's on your Christmas list? Maybe you're hoping for a Minecraft Lego set. Or maybe it's the new Fortnite. I even hear the old Nintendo, like back from the 1990s, it's coming back. And so long as it has Mike Tyson's punch out, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're hoping for a Lululemon belt bag. Or maybe that was last year. Maybe a pair of retro Adidas Sambas, or maybe a gift card to Sephora. Maybe it's the latest gadget, a Garmin, right, smartwatch, whatever it might be, we all have our lists. But perhaps you've had that experience where you really want one thing, but you get something else. So I remember one Christmas as a kid, I really wanted one of those Indiana Jones fedora hats, right? It's the 1980s. Harrison Ford is all the rage, and I've seen the movies, and I want to be that adventurer. I want to be that jet-setting explorer, or at least propeller, and that rare purveyor in antiquities, right? That, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be like him, and I needed the hat. If I'm going to play the part, i got to have the hat. And so when I opened up that last present, my eyes were wide. My heart was just brimming with anticipation, and there was no hat. Instead, in that last package, I got an Argyle sweater. <laughs> Talking about a letdown. I mean, whoever saw Indiana Jones in an Argyle sweater? <laughs> Friends, sometimes Christmas doesn't deliver exactly as we hoped or as we expected. But friends, what about when God is the giver? What unexpected gifts does he give to his people and when he gives, will we feel let down? Well, it's questions like this that actually bring us back this morning to our study in 2 Samuel. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 24 this morning. You can find it on page 277 if you're using one of the red Bibles and the seatbacks before you. And if you happen to be visiting with us and you're less familiar with the Bible, just know when I refer to chapter numbers, that's the big bold number, like 24 verse numbers of the small superscript numbers. Again, page 277. And for the last number of months now, we've really been following the rise, the fall, and then the return of Israel's great king, David. And this morning, we come to the final chapter. We come to the final word, if you will, on David's reign. And we're going to see David wanted one thing, and yet what he gets is, in fact, something quite different. So look down with me, if you would, chapter 24, verse 1. Follow along with me as I read. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. And so the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. While the eyes of my Lord, the king, still see it, but why does my Lord, the king, delight in this thing? But the king's word 
prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. And so Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan, began from Aror, from the city that was in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazir. They came to Gilead and then to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. They came to Dan and from Dan they went to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. And so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. And then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please. Let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arunah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. And then Arunah said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges and the yoke of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arunah, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord responded to the plea for the land 
and the plague was averted from Israel. Now, if you're anything like me, you got to the end of this and you thought, not exactly how I was expecting Samuel to end. All right, pestilence, plague, and 70,000 perish. This is not the Disney kind of happily ever after ending. But it is actually a fitting climax to the entire book. Remember, First and Second Samuel originally just one book. And we're going to see how this chapter links David back to some of the greats of Israel's past while at the same time pointing forward to the glory of her future. And so if you want a sort of summary of chapter 24 in a single sentence, I think we could put it like this. God's king is the priest who provides the sacrifice that propitiates God's wrath against his people. Again, to summarize chapter 24, that's my stab at it. God's king is the priest who provides the sacrifice that propitiates God's wrath against his people. And if you're like, propitiate, I'll explain what that word means a little later, if if that's a new one to you. Now, chapter 4 actually divides itself into three uh, separate and almost equal segments. And notice how each segment is going to have its own kind of literary bookends. So the first segment, verses 1 to 9, notice verse 1, David says, go and number Israel and Judah. That's verse 1. And then notice the end of it, verse 9. We read of the numbering in Israel and Judah. And then the second section, verses 10 to 17, how does David cry out in verse 10? He says, I have sinned. And then notice how the section ends, verse 17. David is saying again, behold, I have sinned. And then the third section, verses 18 to 25, notice it opens in verse 18 with David what? He's commanded to raise an altar to the Lord. And how does verse 25 then close? Or the close, you know, of of the section, verse 25, we read there, David built there, what, an altar to the Lord. So you've got three carefully crafted sections, and those sections are just going to serve as our three points this morning, right? The king's sin, that's verses 1 to 9. The king's sorrow, that's verses 10 to 17. And then the king's sacrifice, verses 18 to 25. So there's the king's sin, the king's sorrow, and the king's sacrifice, So first, let's think about the king's sin. The king's sin, verses 1 to 9. And we admit right out of the blocks, verse 1 kind of throws its leg out and trips us up. Because we read, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. Now, again links this passage back to some of the anger the Lord had with the people back in chapter 21. That much we can sort, of sort out. But, but we're left with so many other questions, aren't we? Why was the Lord angry with his people? Why is numbering all of a sudden nefarious, right? What's culpable about counting? What's so sinful about a census? And maybe most significantly, what does it mean that the Lord himself incited David? And how is David responsible, for he's clearly held responsible, if the Lord incited him? Well, quickly, we find ourselves here wading into some pretty deep theological waters, but let's see if we can't swim safely back to shore, all right? So first, as to why the Lord's angry, 
Well, friends, the text just doesn't tell us explicitly. So any guess would be conjecture. But do notice who he's angry with. Notice his anger is against Israel. And David, the king, will become the means by which he judges his people. Now, why was the numbering nefarious? What is so sinful, after all, about a census? I mean, our nation conducts a census every 10 years or so. It's, it's built, actually, it is every 10 years, because that's built into the very words of our own constitution, right? Article 1, Section 2 calls for a census to be taken. And we don't think of a census as especially dangerous, unless maybe you're in rural Arkansas. Some of you may know that Danny Schrift worked actually for uh, helping with the U.S. Census in 2020. And Danny told me that, you know what, if you walk up a long dirt road in rural Arkansas and you knock on the door and you say, I'm here with the U.S. government, it doesn't always end well. Right? But generally speaking, we don't think much of it. I preached through numbers end of last year. There, Israel conducts a national census twice, chapter 1, chapter 26. But there, remember, in Numbers, the census was commanded by the Lord. Here, it is compelled by David. And another clue may be in Joab's response. Joab clearly tries to dissuade David from this action, which is significant because remember who we're talking about. We're talking about Joab. And in Samuel, Joab is not famous for his tender conscience. But he knows it's wrong. And notice what he says to David, end of verse 3. Why does my lord the king delight in this thing? You know, the key may be in that word delight. Joab seems to sense there's something wrong with David's own heart. You know, maybe the incitement was in the form of rumors coming to David that his enemies were gathering and preparing for war. Or maybe he was simply looking back over his reign and he wanted to place a stamp on it, wanted to go out big, be remembered, much like Caesar Augustus did in the days of Jesus, Luke 2, when he called for an entire census of the Roman world. Now, we don't know exactly, but in doing so, it appears David has now put his confidence in the flesh and not in God. He, his trust is now in people and the number of those people, not in God's promises. He is no longer walking by faith. He is now walking by sight. He has indeed forgotten the words of his best friend, Jonathan, who said, nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few, 1 Samuel 14, 6. For notice the numbering, much like the numbering in the book of Numbers, it is a kind of national draft. So the people counted in verses 4 to 8 are said in verse 9 to be those who could what? Draw a sword. So this is a military muster. And yet whose arm is mighty to save? Is it their arm or is it the Lord's arm? We all know the answer to that. We remember David with Goliath. But it seems David is forgotten. And he longs for security in numbers. I wonder if you know anything of what that's like, to long for security in numbers. Just ask yourself, when your bank account rises, do you feel more secure? When you check it online, you see it, feel a little better about yourself, maybe? 
When you score well on that exam, do you feel more confident? When the health report comes back with the right figures, do you feel safer? I think we all know what it's like in our own ways to put our own security in numbers. Whether it's in calories burned or miles run or hours worked or dollars saved. For when we can count it, when we can measure it, we fall prey to the illusion that we have some control over it. And friends, that is all an expression of our proud hearts. It is to put our confidence in something other than God, something that can be measured and evaluated, even manipulated. We think those things can save us. They can deliver us. I wonder where might you be doing that even right now? But, you know, we could ask the same for us as a church. Where, as UBC, are we tempted to find our own security in numbers? Is it in the number of people who are coming, a, a rising membership? You know, I know what that's like. There are more people in the pews this week, and I'm feeling pretty good, and then there are fewer for the next few weeks, and I start to wonder, have I done something? Right? How do, how do I change the situation? Where have I failed? You know, maybe it's not membership, though. Maybe it's the budget. We used to, as a church, some of you may not know this, but when I got here, we had millions in debt. We had a shrinking budget. But now we have surpluses and a rising budget. And that's not a result of me. That's a result of the Lord's work amongst us. We can take some pride in that if we're not careful. Or it could be in the number of people we send out or the number of churches we planted or the number of missionaries we support. But you see, when our confidence is in such things, when we assess ourselves not by our faithfulness and not by our godliness, but by some notion of effectiveness or fruitfulness, like David, we will soon find ourselves, friends, in deep trouble. Because churches that delight in numbers, churches that chase numbers and put confidence in those numbers, God has a way of humbling those churches. Pray he keeps us humble and trusting in him so that we wouldn't have to be humbled as David is humbled. Thirdly, what does it mean that the Lord incited David? How is David responsible for what it appears the Lord himself has done. If you compare this passage against the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21, we read there that Satan incited David to number Israel. And if you came across that passage this week, perhaps that made you even more confused, right? Who was it? Was it God inciting David? Was it Satan inciting David? Well, friends, I think it's both. It's both. The Bible doesn't rush to explain all the particulars. Rather, it consistently holds out a few key truths. First, God is absolutely sovereign, wonderfully sovereign, which means nothing comes to pass in our lives, however large or small, that he himself hasn't willed to pass. Second, God never sins, nor does he ever tempt one to sin. Just think of James 1.13 which means God doesn't stand behind good and evil in the same way. God performs good. His hands are at work in good. He permits evil. 
which means sometimes he will even use secondary means like Satan to accomplish his own inscrutable purposes. Just think of Job, chapters 1 and 2, which leads thirdly to the truth we see in Scripture that, and see it even here, that when we sin, it is because we choose to sin. Nobody forces us against our will. Nobody is holding a gun to our heads when we sin. We simply do what we want to do. So we can't claim it's God's fault. Right? God didn't number the people. David's not blaming God for what happened. It's not Satan's fault. We can't say it's society's fault. We can't point to that person and say my sin is their fault. No, it's our own fault. We are responsible. So we do exactly what we want to do, and we do what, exactly what God has determined we will do. Friends, that's what theologians call concurrence. Right, there's a fun theological word for you this morning, concurrence. In any action, there are at least two wills at work. There is God's will, and there is human will, our will. And yet, his will is sovereign. So just think, for example, of Acts 4. There we read that there were gathered against Jesus four different groups of people. You had Herod, and you had Pontius Pilate, and you had all the Gentiles, and you had all the people of Israel. Four different groups of people, each pursuing four distinct and demonic ends, and yet all of them and all of their purposes, we read in Acts 4.28, were done to do whatever your hand referring to God, and your plan had predestined to take place. Friends, this understanding that we willfully do only what God has sovereignly ordained that we do, recognize that is the only reason, it is the only assurance you can have and say, therefore, with confidence that God will work all things together for good. If this isn't true, we can't claim that verse. Because it is true, we can claim it. If God wasn't sovereign, even over our free choices, right, we have no basis, again, to make that claim. Which means when we look around the world, friends, when maybe you look at your own life, and when life doesn't seem to make any sense, when we're struggling to understand why, when we're trying to understand the purpose of this thing and what's happening, we don't know all the reasons but we can rest in the God who does. The God who proved his love for us by sending his own son to die for us. Despite however it may appear, he knows exactly what he's doing even right now in each one of our lives. And so back to our story, David's word, the king's word, it prevailed. It overruled Joab's objection. And over nine months later, right, the men are counted and the final number comes back to David, 1.3 million military men, right? He has a formidable army. And with that, you have to think David leaned back somewhat confidently into his throne and a smile began to form across his face. Only that smile wouldn't last long, would it? Point two, the king's sorrow. Moving on to that second scene, the king's sorrow. Because no sooner are we given that number that we read verse 10 that David's heart struck him, or as the NIV would read, he was conscience stricken. 
reflecting on what he had just done, there's a kind of sickening nausea that wells up inside of David. And notice that sorrow, what does it do? It, it doesn't lead him to despair exactly. It leads him to confession. He says, verse 10, I have sinned. And not just sinned, he says, I have sinned greatly. So just as he had been confronted by Nathan over the sin with Bathsheba, what did he say there? I have sinned, right? Just one Hebrew word. Same here, one Hebrew word. I have sinned. David doesn't pass it off, right? He owns it. So not the euphemism we, euphemisms we employ today, right? Not mistakes were made, not accidents happened, not, you know, the devil made me do it. And think about it. If anyone could claim the devil made me do it, David could make that claim. He doesn't make it. He owns his sin. He knows it's his and his alone. Friend, do you know your sin and do you own your sin like David owned his? You know, ask yourself if you're married or if you have a, maybe a really tight rooming situation, you might find something similar or maybe even a situation with siblings. I could apply to numerous, but let's just think in the case of marriage. Are you quick to dismiss your sin, to make excuses for your sin, to justify your sin away? You know, ask yourself, when your spouse confronts you, do you really listen? Do you really own it, or do you simply start to make excuses for it? You know, do you merely hear the words while inside, what are you doing? You're just preparing your rebuttal. You're, you're getting ready. You're busy tallying up all of their offenses that aren't being addressed, and you're consoling yourself that, you know, hey, by comparison, you're not too bad. Inside, you are filled with a kind of smug self-righteousness. And of course, you don't recognize it as such because that's the thing with self-righteousness. We don't recognize it in ourselves, do we? And we think to ourselves, after all, who are they to confront me? Friends, recognize that is not in any way the mark of a repentant person. That is the mark of a deeply proud person. And sadly, if your heart is anything like mine, it may describe you, sadly, all the time. And it's why David admits he's acted very foolishly, which isn't to say he's been silly, right? That's how sometimes we use the word. Foolish in the Bible speaks to acting out of the perverseness of our own hearts. It's interesting in that, that hymn we sang earlier in the service, the king of love, there is, I think it's the third line, there's a connection here. If you, if you remember the song, perverse and foolish, oft I stray. Right, there's that connection in that song, same here, perverseness and foolishness, they go hand in hand. And so David asked the Lord what to take away his iniquity. David knows he can't wash his sin clean. It's like a, a permanent black marker written upon his own soul. He knows only the Lord can wash him white as snow. And so the Lord sends Gad to David. And notice he gives David a choice. He says, okay, for your sin, would you like three years of famine? Or would you want, prefer three months of war with enemy ravaging your cities and countryside? Or would you prefer three days of pestilence. In other words, you want to just pull the band-aid off slowly or do you just want to rip it off altogether? It's your choice, David. And at this, David's overwhelmed. He can't choose. Notice what he says, verse 14. He cries out, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his 
mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Fascinating. David knew the heart of man, and he knew the heart of the Lord, and he knew exactly which heart he could trust in. David, you could say, preferred the wounds of a friend. He knew his God to be merciful. Friends, in our darkest moments, it is in those moments where our theology shines brightest. And David knew his Lord, and he knew that with him there was mercy. You know, I remember my freshman year of college. I may have shared this story. I can't recall but it's the fall semester and I am drowning. I'm drowning literally and figuratively. Drowning because water polo season is a total beat down and I'm literally drowning. And metaphorically, because class has just crushed me the fall of my freshman year. And I knew my writing was bad. And so maybe a little boldly and foolishly, I signed up for this intensive writing seminar with just a dozen other students. And I turned in my first paper and we would all meet with the professor one-on-one afterward And I met him in his office, and he looked at me, and he handed my paper over to me. And as I went to grab it, he held on to it, and he said, I didn't put a grade on it. And I could tell by the look on his face. I knew exactly what that meant. That was just a big, fat F. My first F in my life. He didn't have to write it. I knew exactly what he meant. But that wasn't the worst of it. The problem was that every week when we got together, we would read one of our fellow students' papers. And so I remember reading those first papers, and with every paragraph I read, I just sank deeper into my own chair. I mean, these papers were like the writings of published authors. They were amazing. I was doomed. I knew what I was about to be exposed. I'd look like an absolute idiot. And the professor knew it too. Which is why week after week, he held back my paper. And every week that he held it back, I'm like, oh, I survived another week. Until toward the end of the semester, I turned in what was my best paper. It was still nowhere near many of the others, but at least it wasn't an utter embarrassment. And it was that paper that he chose, that paper he grabbed, that paper he dismissed and distributed to the students He was, I got this distinct sense, waiting, he was hoping, he was even rooting that I'd finally get something that he could hand out to the rest of the class. That professor had shown mercy to me, and I never forgot it. Friends, God is like that. God is merciful. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. My writing was horrible. He deserved, just pass it out. Let's own it for what it was worth at the time. But David knew this God and he could entrust his soul to him. Friend, do you know God like that? Do you know him as merciful, as slow to anger, as abounding in love? He is all of those things and so much more. And yet, because he is good, He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. Whether it's our sin or the sins of others. And so for the people's sin, for David's sin, we read that 70,000 would die. 
You know, David had been dreaming of numbers for nearly 10 months, and I assure you, he was not dreaming of that one. We may think God overreacted. We may think, yeah, he sort of flew off the handle at this one. I mean, what could be deserving of such death? But let me just allow, if you would, an, an observation. Those who struggle most with God's wrath are always those who think the least of sin. The more convinced we are of our own goodness, the more we are troubled by God's justice. As one author put it, the more we sense the noose of God's judgment rightly around our necks, the more we will grow amazed at the greatness of God's mercy and not the severity of his justice. And yet for David, it was too much. Seeing the angels striking out at the people, he cries out in verse 17 again, I have sinned, that I is emphatic. I have done wickedly, but these sheep, he says, what have they done? Now, he doesn't seem to know that the Lord was actually angry with Israel. But he knows the Lord is concerned about his own sin and what David has done. And David feels the weight of that. And so he looks and he says, don't judge them for what I have done. Let your hand fall against me and against my father's house, he prays. The shepherd David there wanted to stand in the place of, to take the place of his own sheep. Right? He, the king instead of the people. The problem is that David was a sinner. David couldn't be that unblemished sacrifice to God. And so that prayer, let your hand fall upon me and upon my family, that prayer would hang over the house of David. That prayer would haunt the house of David for centuries until a thousand years later, that offspring of David would come. And as we read earlier in the service from John 10, as Haley did, he would say, I am the good shepherd, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Which brings us thirdly to the king's sacrifice. The king's sacrifice. Verse 18, David is commanded to raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aronah, the Jebusite. So notice it was right there at the threshing floor that the angel sheathed his sword in verse 16. It was at that very spot that God's wrath subsided. David is to buy that land there and build there an altar. And so the king comes to Arnon, offers him money to buy the threshing floor, verse 21. Notice, so that the plague may be averted from the people. You see, God's wrath, it seemed to be stayed, but it wasn't fully satisfied. The pestilence had stopped there at the back door to Jerusalem, but the plague still persisted in the land. God's wrath needed to be propitiated. And we've come back to that word. And propitiation just speaks to the process by which God's wrath is satisfied. That prefix, propitiation, pro, right? That means for. There is a personal element. It is for somebody, for us. It's not just that God's wrath is satisfied. It's satisfied for us. So think of propitiation as pro-us, if you will, if you want to remember it that way. Because it is the process by which a sacrifice is offered. 
satisfying the wrath of God so that we can be personally restored into fellowship and into favor with God. Now, Aronah says to David, uh, and he says of the land, and he says of the oxen, notice what he says, take it. All of it, it's yours, right? It's a package deal. It all comes together. It can be yours. Take, if you remember, it's that very same word we've seen come up again and again in Samuel. Chapter 8 of the first book, right, describes how worldly kings will take and take and take from the people. It's what describes Saul when he took even what David had done, remember with Bathsheba, he took her. But now notice David won't do it. He won't take it. He won't behave like earthly kings that use and abuse their authority to their own advantage. No, he insists on buying it for a price. He will rule justly over men and in the fear of God, as we read last week in 23.3. And by these actions, the plague will cease, and once again, the land will flourish. So in verse 25, he builds the altar. He offers up sacrifices And we read there that the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted. And with that, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel come to a close. And again, if you're like me, reading it for the first time, it's a bit anticlimactic, isn't it? We're longing, perhaps, for another Goliath-like encounter. We want another vision of the famous shepherd and his slain, right? Go out like that. Or even go out in great mercy like David showed to Mephibosheth, right? That would be a sweet way to end. So why end here? Why end like this? What's the significance? Well, thus far in Samuel, David has been considered a prophet. He speaks to the people for God. He's clearly a king who rules over the people of God. And here he's a priest. He's offering up sacrifices for the people of God. For that prayer in verse 17, that is a priestly prayer. He is praying that he would stand in between God and his wrath and the people. And friends, that's what priests did. They stood in the place of sinners and they offered sacrifices. And so here we're witnessing the enduring significance of David's own reign. David would be the priestly king who made atonement for the people. And notice it's for the people. Friends, we cannot atone for our own sins. There is nothing we can do to work them off, nothing we can do to pay them off. There are no promises we can make. There are no resolutions that we can keep. God would have to make a way. And he did so right there on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, a hill which 2 Chronicles 3.1 refers to as Mount Moriah. So this threshing floor right here is the same place as Mount Moriah. And if Mount Moriah sounds at all familiar, it's because... It's at this very spot that Abraham was called to sacrifice his son Isaac, Genesis 22. Only God would stay Abraham's hand, and God himself would provide the sacrifice. So here David is is being connected backward with those great patriarchs of old. That's how this chapter pushes us backward, and yet it also points us forward. It points us forward to the hope of the future, 
because 2 Chronicles 3 also tells us that it's at this very spot, this same threshing floor, that Solomon builds the temple. David would not build it, but he would secure the location of it. The very place where sacrifices would be offered, where sins would be atoned for, where God would dwell with his people. And so, friends, do you begin to see how David is preparing us for Christmas? It would be 2,000 years ago that another from David's line would be born. And is it not fitting that it was announced to shepherds who were tending their sheep? The promised son of 2 Samuel has come. And like David, this king had a prayer to pray, and this king had a sacrifice to offer. And so on a similar hill outside of Jerusalem, what would he pray? Not my will, but yours be done. And then he would climb that hill. Some say that hill at Golgotha is the same as Mount Moriah. It may be, it may not be. It's at least in the same range And just as David's sacrifice involved the use of both wood and blood, so would his greater son's sacrifice. Only when Abraham, at the same site, raised his hand, God intervened. God provided the substitute. And with the angel's hand raised here in 2 Samuel 24, we see again, God intervenes. God provides a substitute. But a thousand years later, in that city of David, God would not stay his hand, for his son was the substitute, a sacrifice of incalculable worth. And yet just as Isaac was spared after three days' journey and Jerusalem was spared after three days of a plague, so after three days, Jesus would rise from the dead. Sin had been paid. God's wrath had been propitiated. His resurrection, Jesus' resurrection was the proof. And so we begin to understand, I think, the ultimate purpose of the book. We have it right here, chapter 24, in miniature. How God would raise up a lowly shepherd king who provides the sacrifice that propitiates God's wrath against his people. Friends, that's why Jesus came. It's why he was born. It was to fulfill this promise. It was to answer this prayer. It was to bring an end once and for all to the plague of human sin and to sheath forever the sword of God's own anger. Right here we most profoundly see how David is preparing us for Christmas. He's preparing us for Jesus. So listen, if you've come, and maybe you've come because it's Christmas time and, you know, churches are, seem like a good place to be around Christmas, we pray you've been encouraged, but just we want you to know more than anything else, as a sinner, your sin, just like mine, needs to be atoned for. And you can't do it any more than David could do it, which is why God sent his son to be the sacrifice, to stand in your stead to take your sin upon the cross, nailing it to the cross, and then rising from the grave as proof that God had accepted that perfect sacrifice so that we who are sinful can have our sins given over to Jesus. And Jesus, who is perfectly righteous, well, we get his righteousness. There's a sweet exchange that happens. And in that, God looks at us, and we are forgiven. His wrath propitiated, relationship restored. 
If you don't know that message of Christianity, I mean, that is Christmas right there. That's what is Christians. That's really the only thing we're about at the end of the day. And I pray that you would come to trust and know you need this God, and he is merciful in Jesus. You know, friends, sometimes Christmas doesn't deliver exactly as we hoped or expected. And I longed for that Indiana Jones fedora hat. Instead, I got an Argyle sweater. But friends, I hope you see that when God is the giver, when his son is the gift, we are given the most precious gift, a gift of incalculable worth, more than the world has ever seen, the gift of sins forgiven, of fellowship and favor restored. This gift, friends, will never let you down. It'll never let you down. So ask yourself, what is it that you want for Christmas? And then ask yourself, can that thing appease the wrath of God? Can it atone for your sin? Can it restore you to fellowship and favor with God? Friends, such is the gift of Christmas. Will it be yours? Let's pray.